Good morning. Please forgive my... I'm going to cough. I have really bad allergies right now. <clears throat> so it's the first day. And on the first day, we tend to focus on settling. On concentration. We'll chant at lunch a writing by Dogen on samadhi, which is the word we use for gathering the mind or to concentrate it. And in the beginning, that um, that just feels kind of very um, difficult for a few minutes here and there. But over time, the hope is that that settled concentration is a way of life. Not something we do, but something we live from. So we're talking this practice period about karma. And this relationship between... We may, we may think that, or maybe we don't think this, but we may think that we need to concentrate the mind and then we'll start working on karma. Or, and I'll talk about what we mean by karma. Or we may think that um, the focus in zazen is one thing and working on karma is another thing. Maybe we don't think that. But um, the way Dogen talks about this is they are not at all different things. That it is sitting upright in samadhi, in zazen, with a gathered mind that allows karma to be worked. We don't have to, we have to take responsibility for our karma. We have to be willing to see it. But we don't have to sit down with a plan. We don't have to figure out the most efficient way to work with our karma or some strategy to work with it. We can sit down in zazen and bring the attention to the breath again and again until at first we might notice that we're starting to settle in the breath. Maybe that's the first thing we begin to settle in. That the division between the attention to the breath and the breath becomes less and less divided. But then that concentration can expand and there's a feeling of being able... So at first we kind of think of concentration as I'm looking at something, I'm concentrating on something. But over time, we begin to settle into concentration. We become concentrated. And as we settle into that concentration, the body is gathered. The mind is gathered. Movement is gathered. Am I... In Zen, we talk a lot about the continuousness of that concentration. So when I'm bowing, 
is the whole action gathered? Is it all gathered and concentrated in one continuous present movement? Or do I drop out for a minute? Is the mind kind of fractured? And this is... um, this fracturing of the mind is the way, this is how we grasp. This is what grasping looks like. I grab this thing, the rest of the mind is gone. I grab this one, the rest of the mind is gone. The rest of my experience is gone. The body is gone. So I want to encourage us to um, take our concentration seriously. Not just as a neat trick, not just as a way to feel good, but as a moral obligation. As what it is to be moral in the world. I catch myself when I slip, it's because I'm not attentive. When I fall off on the precept, on a precept, it's because I have not. Um, in that moment, whether it be because of failure of my practice or whether it be because I've been too busy, whatever the conditions are, and by failure of practice, maybe I'm not doing enough concentration practice that day. But in those moments, when I slip, there's usually something to do with the mind being fractured. There's usually something to do with the um, with my not experiencing myself in wholeness, which includes that other person, which includes the whole of the action, which includes the whole of the moment. And so, our karma comes up in this. Or either, it's, it's, it's usually some combination of either behind a curtain totally driving us, where we're not even looking at it because it's behind what we're experiencing as the looker. It's just kind of running. The show is who I am. Or it starts to pop up into awareness. And it starts to pop up in awareness in a way where that awareness isn't fractured, where I'm able to be with it. And I'm able to see the seeds of it. I'm able to see the seeds, well, actually the fruits, I'm sorry. I'm able to see the fruits, karmic fruits arise, karmic effects arise. And um, it is the seeing that is what's needed. When even for a moment you express the Buddhist seal in the three actions by sitting upright in samadhi, the whole phenomenal world becomes the Buddhist seal and the entire sky turns into enlightenment. The whole phenomenal world becomes the Buddhist seal. The whole phenomenal world becomes awakening. When we're upright in a gathered mind that is undivided. Whatever our past, ancient, built-up karma that's coming to fruit in that moment may be, 
it is coming to fruition as Buddha. When the mind is gathered, it is coming to fruition as Buddha. It is coming to fruition as complete, total, upright, moral, awake witness. We don't have to do that. We simply have to intend, have intention to sit and return to the concentrated mind until that one day is simply possible. Sometimes for a few moments, sometimes for longer. And to expand and to commit and to vow to expand that um, awareness and that wholeness in what we do. So when we talk about bringing this mind of zazen to washing dishes or bowing. If I bow, do I just kind of have a thought that starts the bow and the rest is mechanical? Or am I fully bodily with the entire movement? And when I come up and I'm looking at the Buddha, do I take in the face of the Buddha? Do I take in the experience of the going down, coming up in the face of the Buddha? If I can't, in prostration, take in the face of the Buddha, or the Bodhisattva I'm bowing to, how am I going to take in the Buddha in the faces of everyone else? If I can't do it there. So to be with To be holy with the wholeness of the stillness and the movement of our lives. And in that, renunciation and confession happens because that's how we see. A commitment to that is how we see. If we're committed to that, that which cannot live that commitment pops up in front of us. We start to see the things that fracture that mind. We start to see the things that cause discomfort and dukkha and suffering and all of this. We see karma. We see grasping. So this, even even at the moment, even at the initial first commitment, probably even before this, that one decides to bring one's attention to the breath to concentrate the mind, one is already working with karma. One is already working with one's suffering and the suffering of the world. That's not all of it. That's not the whole. But that's beginning to build the mind that is able to be. The mind that can be with the fire of its own karmic conditioning is the mind that eventually can be with the fire of the world. The mind that cannot, because there's no difference between the fire of my own karmic conditioning and the fire of the world. So during these three days, I want to talk about um, exactly that. That the Bodhisattva vow 
of living for the liberation of all beings, even before my own, but to raise up in the heart the liberation of all beings. This is the most powerful interrupter and lover of karma. This vow turns everything toward karma. It turns everything toward karma and it stops just the very vow to say, I am now living for the liberation of all beings, interrupts, disrupts, the whole way the mind likes to operate the rest of the time, which is, I am living for my own appeasement, happiness, whatever that is, as if that is somehow separate from other people's appeasement and happiness. So this Bodhisattva vow radically interrupts that habit. It radically interrupts that habit, which means it radically interrupts our karma. But then it also loves and takes care of the karma, because the vow is to be devoted to the liberation of all beings, including all of our karma. So in its interruption, it doesn't disrupt it in a violent and destructive way. It disrupts it in a caretaking way in a way that is taking care of that karma, because we're not going to be free from our karma by violently confronting it. I have never found that to work anyway. So, what do we mean by karma? And then we'll talk more about the Bodhisattva vow. There is... um, a few teachings in the Pali about karma that distinguish it in the Pali canon, which are the old texts of Buddhism, that distinguish it from other ideas of karma. And different traditions have different ideas of what karma is. And even within Buddhism, it can get very confusing depending on what tradition you're reading and listening to and what teacher you're reading and listening to. But I want to talk specifically about a teaching that is in the um, Malia Sivika Sutta about the, what are called the niyamas. You don't have to remember these words, but they're the five kinds of dependent co-arising. I just want to say the teaching because I think it's very, very clarifying. Niyama is a way, karma is a special case of dependent co-arising. So dependent co-arising is our belief in the interconnectedness of all things. And a special case of that is karma. And karma, the way the Buddha used it, essentially referred to the moral, the human moral universe. It was how our volitional actions, our, our willed actions, are affected and caused, and cause things to happen. And from that comes our character and our personality and all of this. So much of what 
not all, and that's going to be important in this teaching, much of what happens to us happens because of our own willful commitments and the willful commitments of others. The whole arising, interconnected human moral universe. It isn't a simple line like, I do something, plant a seed, and that seed comes to fruition in my life. Everybody's planting seeds, and they're all coming to fruition, and we're being affected by all of them. And yet we're still, we're, we still vow to take responsibility for them. We still vow to take responsibility for the human moral world. But there are other kinds. One is Utumiyama, which is the physical universe. So avalanche happens. For Buddhism, for at least in this particular tradition, and I think this is the one Zen adheres to, if an avalanche happens it's not beca- and destroys a town, it's not because those people in the town did something bad. It's because there's physical causation and avalanches happen. There's biological causation that simply plays out in a particular way. Now, all of this is getting complicated in our current moment where human moral action starts affecting all of these other ones. But this is... This is that was hard to conceive of at the time this was written. At the scale we're looking at it, but um, biological, we have we're genetically conditioned. Biological things unfold. This isn't because we did terrible, we did morally unwholesome things, and now we're paying for it. This isn't again to say that these things don't interact. But the Buddha was very critical of Brahmins who, what he called, did karmic overreach. Where everything that happens to you in this current life is because of something you did. He considered this karmic overreach. Then there's mental. Niyama, mental dependent arising. Again, this, is not ta- this can be affected by our karma, but isn't entirely that way. Some of us are born with particular mental capacities and different, and that are different from each other. And that just is the way it is. And then there's karma, which we talk about. And then there's dhamma or dharmic, dependent co-arising. This is what, I think the physical and the biological and the mental are fairly straightforward. And we can, we can all work with how our actions influence them. But the um, but this dharmic piece is what Dogen talks a lot about. So we're going to be chanting something in the in the afternoons in the evening service that is going to be about arousing the aspiration for enlightenment. It's a writing by Dogen, and he talks specifically about the aspiration for enlightenment being the bodhisattva vow. But he talks about this arising of the vow or the aspiration. And he says, the aspiration is neither originally existent nor does it emerge all of a sudden. It is neither one nor many. It is neither spontaneous nor formed gradually. This aspiration is not yourself nor are you in it. This aspiration is not pervasive in the world of phenomena. It is neither 
before nor after. It is neither existent nor non-existent. It is neither self-nature nor other nature. It is neither common nature nor causeless nature. What all these mean, don't worry about right now. Yet in response to affinity between a teacher and student, the aspiration for enlightenment arises. He's talking, here he's pointing to this kind of causation that is the Dharma arising in us. Or the Dharma arising, in this case, between us, which is the way Dogen often talks about it. That it arises in community, it arises between teacher and student. This, the ground for this arising, we prepare. And we prepare that ground for this arising in the world of karma, in the world of our intentions, in our moral world, in our vows, in our commitments. But when this arising occurs, and how this causation works, is beyond our ability to comprehend. We have some sense of what prepares the ground, but we have no idea when the plant sprouts or even if it is going to, or what insights are going to happen, or how karma is going to be seen, or how it's going to be taken care of. This is frustrating to the controller ego mind. It's very, very joyful to all the other aspects of who we are. Because we actually get to live in and be held by a profound mystery that is caring for us if we're doing the karmic work to prepare the ground, to be cared for. In some ways, this, maybe in every way, the timeline or the functioning or the reality of the Dharma as it is lived is not paying it, is not um, tied at least not one-to-one causally, with the timeline and everything that's going on in our karmic world. Freedom and the potentiality for freedom and liberation and love and care, regardless of circumstances, although not totally independent of circumstances, is available to us. Love is available to us. Care is available to us. The wholeness of the gathered mind is always available to us. If we're willing, if I'm willing, to do the karmic work of practice, of intending to look, of intending to take responsibility for my mind, intending to take responsibility for my actions. If I don't do that at all, it becomes a whole lot less available to me. And I'll just say, in closing, that this... this um, we chant before this lecture, or not lecture, talk, whatever this is, um, a chant about renunciation and confession the renunciation and confession of our karma. And the renunciation and confession of our karma 
is absolutely necessary for our liberation, for our freedom, and for our happiness in this path as we understand it. And I, I believe our... I have a particular responsibility for my own in, in relationships like this one where I'm in community. But um, I also have a responsibility for the collective karma that informs me and that I'm a part of and that I'm informing. Especially since I'm, pro- I'm so often unconscious of the way I'm informing it and the way it's informing me. So we have to do this, we have to take part, and we, this is the precepts, and using the precepts to point to the ways that we are causing harm and taking up a life of vow instead of just dropping into a life of unconscious karma, taking up a life of vow to um, show us that, to renounce the things that cause harm and confess them, to renounce in the way Dogen talks about, to renounce our lack of faith, confess, not renounce necessarily, but at least confess our lack of faith in the um, path of liberation for all beings, when we have no faith in it, when we think it's just there's too much crap going on in the world, when we're completely discouraged, when it looks like nothing is moving in a way that feels loving and wholesome, At that moment, sometimes faith quivers. Which is fine, we just confess that. The world can be violent and overwhelming. But this renunciation and confession, he says, if we do this, Dogen says, if we do this, we can, we will always have help and support from the ancestors and bodhisattvas and buddhas and other beings in the whole of life. If we are engaged in this process deeply and authentically. So there's this piece. And then there's the piece of gathering the mind that we started with. Of sitting zazen. Of bringing our attention first to the breath and resting and concentration may be expanding for people. More things may be included. When a sound comes up that in the past was a distraction, now is simply included in the mind of concentration. When a thought that used to come up and disrupt now comes up and is just included in the mind of concentration. And more and more we just are able to include. More and more is included. More and more is in the gathering of the mind. As that becomes the case, and so what interrupts that gathering is the karma we resist confessing. Is the karma we resist allowing. We want to do something with it. I want to fix that thing here right now. I want to feel something else. I want to do whatever but be with that particular karmic arising, that particular karmic fruit. That we can't include. But if we include it, then the whole of the universe is free to work on that karma. 
If we don't include it, the whole of the universe is not freed to work on that karma. Because we're blocking it. The whole of the universe is there. And in some ways, if we step back, we can say the whole of the universe is working on the one who's not working on the karma. And that's true. So in a way, you don't even have to worry. But in the immediate conscious mind, we are slowing down the process when we refuse to allow karma to be in the gathered mind. So if we can just allow, you know, rain is often taught for those who know rain, this is, that's this process. We have to allow karmic fruits to be without reacting to them. And so sometimes that's very painful and sometimes that's very joyful and sometimes all of that's happening. But if you can see what's beginning to happen, and this is, is that the process of renunciation and confession of our karma and the process of the concentrated mind that expands to include become one thing. We live from the gathered mind that allows karma to arise and be purified by the gathered mind. This is what we call shikantaza. This is the wide open mind that allows karma. Because if you notice... When something comes up in the mind that is disruptive, just look and see if making a big deal about fixing it or doing something with it ever does anything useful. Let's see if that works. And, and then see if letting it come up in the gathered mind without fracturing it in a concentrated mind and letting it be there until it finds its own way see how that works and what happens there we have five minutes okay I will end now so encouraging on the first day of retreat to gather the mind to concentrate the attention karma will arise Allow it when you can. And in doing this, we are taking up fully the Bodhisattva vow. In that moment. In that moment of allowing karma to arise into the care of the wholeness of the mind, we are taking up the Bodhisattva vow. And we are building the capacity for the Bodhisattva vow. We might then go outside and somebody does something, and everything gets shaky, and we're not able to embody the Bodhisattva vow at that moment. That's okay. I confess when I can't embody the Bodhisattva vow. At least to me. Hopefully to you. So, let's start there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.